The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers. Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Chelsea Simone, clinical nurse researcher and founder of Hunter 7 Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. So Chelsea, there's a lot in the news lately about burn pit exposures and the effects it's having on our soldiers and veterans. Um, But I think based on previous conversation, that seems to be the tip of the iceberg. Um, Before we take this journey with you, can you tell us about your background? Where did you grow up and did you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, so uh, the good part of my uh, life I've spent in Massachusetts aside my time in the military I was traveling here there and everywhere but um, I actually had a pretty rough childhood and uh, my family was split up I do have three brothers uh, one passed away one is in the Marine Corps and I have a sister so my family life wasn't that great growing up and my uh, ironically my academic uh, life wasn't as good either I was I did pretty bad in school oh, wow. um you know, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah it's it's ironic um yeah I, I passed with uh d's and um i was an, an athlete so then i think that's what kept me above ground but it's uh it's funny how how the tables turn um, wow they did <laughs> wow yeah i did not expect that <laughs> yeah i was really bad at school and it's mm-hmm. it's funny people are like oh you know tell me you know because I, I love to read now and i, I never uh enjoyed reading before and it's, it's funny because people say, well, what's your weakness? And I was like, well, I can't long divide. And they're like, are you serious? And I was like, I'm very serious. I don't know how to long divide. And it's a fun fact that I, uh, that I tell people. I'm like, you know, it's always a learning curve. I work hard. So that's working why they hard made, gets you where you need to be. That's why they made cal- calculators. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's my argument. But I moved around so much as a kid that I never actually was in a school or grade long enough to hit that uh, curriculum that was maintained consistently. So it was very inconvenient for me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I have a, I have a pretty big family, but we're all scattered across the, uh, across the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the tables really did turn and now you're a, a researcher. So um, now yep. you, you are an army veteran yourself. Can you tell us yes. about your personal experience in the military? What was your career field? And how do you see it may have paved the way for you to become the founder of Hunter 7? Yeah, so again, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a really ironic story how, how my life really turned out. Um, being that I was a, an athlete in uh, high school, I got a full scholarship to Mass, Mass Maritime Academy, which is a, you know, it's a, a military academy on a smaller scale up in, in Cape Cod. And I love the ocean. I grew up around the ocean. So, you know, I always wanted to join the Navy eventually. So I got this full scholarship to go to Mass Maritime. And when I went there, I was like, oh, no, no, this is way too strict for me. And, I, and I, you know, I'm more of a free spirit. You can't tell me what to do. And all, you know, I was that kid in high school, mm-hmm. always in detention and always getting suspended. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very true. <laughs> 
So, so I was like, this isn't for me, you know, and, and I remember the commander said to me of the academy, he said, if this is, if you're, if you're here at a party, this isn't the school for you. And I was like, well, I guess that's that. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went to go to the Navy recruiter in Rhode Island. And, um, he said, uh, I can't remember what it was. There was like a wait list or something for the job I wanted. And, uh, I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to go to the army. <laughs> Wow. So I went over to the army. Yeah. So uh, interesting, just a career path. But I went to the army and they're like, yeah, you can be whatever you want to be. And I was like, awesome. I'll take it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. So, I mean, I never, uh, I never thought I would be doing medical. I always wanted to do legal. Mm-hmm. Um, so for medical, it's even funny. So I went up to enlist at a MEPS in Boston and, you know, we all stand in line and all this stuff and they they drew my blood and I passed out and I got made fun of by all the military people there. They're like, Hey, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. <laughs> yeah. So my entire life I've been terrified of needles up until the point where I joined the military and, you know, having people practice on you and stick you left and right. And now it doesn't bother me, but that was, um, I had a phobia of blood and needles and, Oh, it was so bad. So that's an interesting turn yeah, of events. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what what was your career field in the army? So originally, I enlisted into the aviation um, regiment. So I spent time as a medic. I spent time as a platoon leader. Uh, I want to say about a third of the way into my career, I broke my back, um, and I didn't realize I did it at first until I lost and this, this, I'm, I'm sharing all the embarrassing stories today. So <laughs> I didn't realize that I had actually broken my back to the point where it was like a severe injury. Cause I was so young until I lost control of my bladder and oh, wow. I couldn't feel my right leg. And I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> I should probably tell somebody. And it, it was uh, terrifying. Wow. And it was and the most significant pain I've ever been in. How um, did you, how did you break your back? Oh, you know, it was just, I want to say it's operator error. You know, mm-hmm. I probably did mm-hmm. something wrong, but y- you know how it is. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the military put, they said to me, you got to go get this figured out. So, you know, I had surgery, a spinal surgery at 20, 21 years old shortly after. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, it was pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was an eye-opening experience for me because it was the first time that I actually felt like I was separated from something that I was supposed to be a part of, mm-hmm. you know, just being away from my team. And, and you know, I, I, it's ironic because I think a lot of people join the military from, you know, um, unfortunate backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So it's like, once you find that family, they're your family. So I was separated and, and my provider at the time, this is in two, this is 2010, 2009, maybe mm-hmm. my provider had given me so many, uh, opioids, like 500 pills. And I remember being so young and being like, what, this is insane. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. why would you give somebody this much medication? And, um, you know, I, I was pretty much on my own trying to manage this injury and I couldn't walk and the nightmares were horrific. And, um, you know, it was a, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time, and and I remember what really kind of woke me up, I guess you could say, was when I drank liquid Percocet, and I, you know, what twenty one year old is going to measure out their medication? So, you know, I drank this liquid Percocet, and I, and I literally overdosed on it, and I threw up everywhere, and I oh had to goodness. dump it out. Oh it was goodness. it was eye opening. It I was eye opening. So, but 
my neurosurgeon said to me, Chelsea, you got to get out of the military. I said, nope. <laughs> and I, I fought with him to, to sign a waiver for me to stay in. So, you know, I, I rehabbed entirely physical fitness. I was scoring 300s on PT tests and I went back and, and they said, okay, we're, we won't med board you. You can stay in. Mm, wow. And, um, yeah, so I took on more of a leadership role. I was assigned as a, a PL for a while. So I was doing a lot of planning, a lot of, um, you know, oversight and stuff like that within aviation. It was, it was a good time, but I, uh, I was doing burpees one day, <laughs> you oh, know, no. burpees. they're, they're, yeah, they're terrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where this is going <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible exercise, but I was like, Oh, you know, I'm strong. I can do this. And I, I was probably on only number 25 and I, I leaned my back just leaned in just right. And all of a sudden I felt a pop <sighs> and I felt, a severe warm like this insanely warm pain down my leg and I was like oh my god <laughs> mm. and I I remember laying on the parade field and I was just like this is not great and um that's when they told me you know I went to the VA and they said listen your career's over hands down mm. uh find another career and mm. I was like well it's easier said than done and so uh, I remember the VA provider saying to me, and I thought it was the stupidest thing at the time. I was so naive and so young and so angry. He said to me, just because you're out of uniform doesn't mean you're done serving. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But Ooh, now that wow. it's stuck with me for the past seven years, eight wow. years, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that um, is profound. Yeah. And I mean, around the same time I was trying to figure out my life is when I, um, I was, I was placed on reserve status and I would, I went to the local college, uh, Rhode Island college. And I said, I guess I want to do, you know, nursing. <laughs> and they were like, well, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was tough. Um, it was tough. I, I mean, we had to hit a lot of our prerequisites first and I was a lot different than the typical student there. And, that was a pretty difficult adjustment. You know, I, like I said, I was, I was kind of thrown away from my team and they were deploying and I was staying back and it was just a really tough time. And I, um, it was, it was an, I had to adapt for sure. There was a lot of changes in yeah. how I could talk to people, how I could act, you know, it was, it was an unsettling feeling, but I stuck with it and, um, I worked my ass off to, uh, pass, uh, anatomy and physiology for sure <laughs> but um you know it was it was a blessing in disguise because you know the nursing program I graduated from was very um was very difficult you know we have one of the highest uh um you know NCLEX pass rates in the country at like 98 percent so wow. you know yeah so mm -hmm. our curriculum was very difficult I think we started off with like 120 and we graduated with like 40 because people could maintain the standard mm -hmm. And so <laughs> when I, you know, those people are with you your entire undergrad career. So I, some of my closest friends, it was like, I found my family again. And, um, around the same time I had met my now husband. So it was a, it was an experience. <laughs> wow. And I mean, going from a D student <laughs> in your oh, youth yeah. to yep. the army, and now you're in this uh, very difficult nursing uh, program, and um, mm. and then even went on to uh, to to publish an international research paper um, on Iraqi freedom. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's that's an that's an even better story. So <laughs> when I met when I met my husband, he is um, three four years older than me. 
and uh, he comes from a family, you know, him and his brother, they both served in the military. Um, you know, it was like, you can't afford college, you're going to go into the military. So he, he enlisted and, and he served in a striker regiment and um, with uh, second cab out of Germany. So imagine an 18 year old kid in Germany. So he was over there and he deployed to Iraq in 2007 and he was there in Iraq till 2008. But he was he was one of the guys that was uh, stop loss, so he was there for about sixteen months. Oh no! Yeah, mm. and so I remember I met him at a Dunkin' Donuts. Everybody thinks we met in the military, but we didn't. We met at a Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> I made fun of his coffee choice. How romantic! You know, and then I know, I know. I it's yeah, it's I was because he, he ordered a, a pumpkin spice extra extra, and I was like, oh my god! I was like, is that for your girlfriend? And he was like, it's for me. And I was like, you're a, you're kidding right and it was just because i drink black coffee so it was just ironically funny what and, uh, is a pumpkin spice <laughs> extra extra <laughs> yeah yeah right so it's like like you think of, of like the memes with like the, the the chick in starbucks with the ugg boots <laughs> and that yeah like that's like my manly husband yeah so very very awkward it. yeah so it was a match made in heaven i was like you gotta be shitting me oh and then i found gosh. out he was a veteran and so he we started hanging out and you know to this day, he's my best friend. I love him to death. And Aww. he's just like one of the greatest guys. Yeah. So we hit it off immediately. And I remember we were sitting in his truck one day and it was uh, during the winter. And this was like my first year of college. And he said to me, you know, a lot of my friends died in Iraq. And, you know, 2007, 2008 were some of the deadliest years. But he said to me, more of my friends died when they got home. And I said, oh, from, from suicide? And he said, well, a few did, but mostly from cancers or like these weird illnesses. And I was like, what? Like, it didn't make sense. It didn't click in my head. I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And so he said to me, when we got back from Iraq, the day we stepped foot in Germany, my best friend, who was 24 years old, Pat Sullivan, he had acute respiratory failure and died. And, and I was like, 24 years I was like oh you know maybe it was a, a, a you know a secluded incident whatever and so he started telling me about one of his uh one of the uh team leaders who was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia who passed away at 36 Sean McCann mm. and so he starts running through all these names and finally he gets to this one guy and he tells me about his sergeant major who uh had served in Iraq and Missoula at Fab Marez previously prior to this deployment that Kyle was on. And he said, you know, in my Sergeant Major, he was diagnosed with a rare form of bile duct cancer. And I mean, you don't hear a bile duct cancer. It's not common in this mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. And so cholioangiocarcinoma. And so I look it up and I'm like, what the hell is cholioangiocarcinoma? And so it's a rare bile duct cancer between your gallbladder and your liver. Mm -hmm. And it's common in Asian males over the age of 80 who have hepatitis. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's extremely rare. And so nothing made sense. This 44-year-old Irish guy <laughs> without hepatitis would get this cancer. And so looking more into it, I started going on Google Scholar and PubMed and trying to find research on why these young guys were dying, if there was a correlation. And um, the one thing I found was that depleted uranium causes, uh, can cause cholioangiocarcinoma. And so after talking to Kyle about it, I said, hey, were you ever around depleted uranium? And I guess that the armor plating and a lot of heavy equipment 
is is manufactured with depleted uranium. So when a lot of these guys would hit roadside bombs, that particulate matter would expand and, and they could inhale it, they could ingest it, it could lay on their skin dormant. So that's kind of what set me off to do research. And then following that, I when I, when I was at nursing school, I, I remember sitting there and I, I went to my professor and I, this was my second year. And I said, hey, I want to do a research project. And she laughed at me. And she was like, <laughs> you're a sophomore in college for undergrad. You don't do research. And I said, well, <laughs> and, and she was right. That's very uncommon. So I said to her, I was like, well, listen, I'm not like the other kids. You know, like, Clearly. I'm just now, I'm older. <laughs> so I said to her, I was like, this is something that really is, is weighs heavy to me. It's close to me. And so at the same time, I had found out that one of the pilots that I was with actually died of uh, pancreatic cancer. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And then another pilot that I was with diagnosed, was diagnosed with um, brain cancer in oh their goodness. 30s and 40s. So I was like, this is getting really close to home. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know what's going on. And so finally, I convinced her to let me do a, a quote unquote honors project. So. I did this project and the literature review alone, I spent one summer just working on the review of the literature that was out there. And uh, I gave her a lit review that was over 120 pages. And she was like, you got to be kidding me. And she's like, okay, you can do this. And I was like, that's right. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went through everything and, and I, um, I formulated this, uh, this survey tool, which looked at the demographics, the pre during and post-deployment symptomology based on exposures and Operation Iraqi Freedom Veterans. And so there was a a few correlations that really stuck out. I mean, the rate of sleep apnea, um, the rate of acid reflux in these guys and and gals and just the the weird, weird issues. And so they went from having, you know, pre-deployment, it was only like 93%, you know, 93% were asymptomatic. None of them had symptoms before deploying to Iraq. And then after deploying to Iraq, it was only like 42 that had um, passed their PT test and only like 5% didn't have symptoms. So we looked at that and I was like, wow, this is a big problem. What is it about that area that causes these types of issues? Mm-hmm. And so my senior year, I was the only one to graduate with honors in nursing and honors through the college. <laughs> I was nominated the uh, the student the faculty student award at graduation, and then I published this paper internationally with um, the uh, International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. <laughs> wow, Chelsea, that is just amazing. It sounds amazing, but I had a great team, great team to support me. <laughs> right. I mean, you were just clearly very passionate about about your research and about, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. And um, yeah. what was the tipping point where you said, I need to do something about what you were finding in your research? And how did Hunter 7 get started? Yeah, so once that study published... You know, initially, Hunter 7 was founded based on the theory that there needed to be more research. So we wanted to strictly be a research organization. I have zero, zero idea how a nonprofit works. So it was very, um, it was very difficult to kind of get the process moving. But when my husband served with that man who died from colioangiocarcinoma, um, his name was Rob Bowman and his call sign in Iraq was Hunter 7. So 
the name Hunter 7 Foundation was actually in memoriam to him. And I remember reaching out to his wife on Facebook and I said to her, I was like, hey, I know you don't know me, but this is the story that uh, that was shared with me and this is what I want to do. And her name's Colleen and we're still very close to this day. We, te- we text almost daily. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, this was a while ago. And so we created the Hunter 7 Foundation to improve the, uh, the research out there on toxic exposures and cancers and illnesses on post 9-11 so it was what started out as just a basic research you know this is what we're going to do to improve the information available turned into a wow there's a huge misconception and lack of education by civilian healthcare providers you know i graduated with my rn um and i continued to serve in the um in the ER as an ER nurse. And I mean, we got a lot of young patients and it wasn't until one of them, you know, he came in with shortness of breath and discolored phlegm. And he said to me, I've had this illness for, you know, about six months. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, not to discredit males, but you guys get the man flu and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, some of them, over, most of them overreact. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So I remember doing his discharge paperwork, you know, azithromycin, uh, corticosteroid follow-up in six to eight weeks if you don't feel better. The basics, right? right? right. And so I turned around and I looked at him and I noticed he had a tattoo with a military, it was a military type tattoo with like cross rifles Mm -hmm. and he had a a black rifle coffee shirt on. And I was like, oh yeah, I love coffee, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, did you serve in the military? And he was like, yeah, I was a military police officer in, in the army. And I said, oh, you know, did you do anything cool? And he's like, well, I just got back from Iraq about eight months ago. I was in Abu Ghraib, the, the prison for uh, mm. the Iraqi, um, the Iraqi prison. Oh. And I, and so I stopped and I was like, oh my God, we got to test this guy. We got to test this guy. And I remembered, and the only reason why I thought of this is because I had to get a, a test done for myself, you mm. know? So I went to the doctor and I said, Hey, I think this guy is at risk for tuberculosis. And he's like, listen, you're just a nurse. You're a new grad. Tuberculosis is not common in this country, if at all. You know, mm-hmm. get out of here. And I was like, but I think he needs to be tested. Mm-hmm. And so I, I stuck up for myself, which, you know, I got a lot of heat for at the time. But yeah. we tested this guy through a chest x-ray and a tuberculosis uh, PPD test. Mm-hmm. And it came back positive for latent tuberculosis. Oh, and wow. So, Look at you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, so that was the first time that I was like, there is a huge gap in knowledge by these providers. And, Interesting. And to their def- a huge gap in knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so to their defense, I understand, right? You know, we have specialties for a reason, but, you know, and I, and I can't expect a civilian provider to know everything about military exposures. It's just impossible. So what I started to do is I started to look at a lot of the research that was already out there. And a lot of stuff came through from um, the Rand Corporation and uh, Terry Tanlian and uh, Dr. Kerry Farmer, amazing individuals. I've followed their research for, for years, literally a decade. And so once I've actually spoken to them, it's like meeting a celebrity. It's really funny. They think, mm-hmm. they think I'm a nerd. But <laughs> so <laughs> they, they had a study that came out that it was the, uh, um, you know, uh, are we ready to serve our veteran population? And and what they found was we we are. And and a study that followed off of that was by uh, one of the top VA officials, uh, Tammy Bonzato, and it said that only four percent of civilian providers were capable to provide veteran specific and veteran centric healthcare. 
And that's horrific. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a nurse, you know, we're the most trusted profession for the past 30 years. And so for me to only be quote unquote, 4% competent to provide the best care possible to that patient, that's, that's, that's really not okay. So that's where we said, okay, so we're going to do research and we're going to do education. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it progressed very, very quickly. Um, so we started educating civilian providers, you know, veterans about their different exposures and, and so we started on Instagram and, and Facebook. And once we started sharing these things, we started getting a bombardment of people saying, Hey, you know, I served here. I served here. I have this cancer, I have this cancer. And mm. I couldn't keep up with how much cancer was actually going on. And I said, this is insane. Like how are all these young kids being diagnosed with these rare cancers? And, you know, it was insane. I've never seen anything so incredibly disheartening before in my life it didn't feel real I was like no way no way all these people are sick no way Mm. and so that's how we kind of formed our immediate needs program so with our immediate needs program that's what we do we we help support cover down on expenses testing second opinions um, travel medications uh, genetic testing you name it um for for veterans who have served overseas that are symptomatic and those who have been diagnosed with cancer but we just actually got into uh covering down on a test that screens for for different types of cancers using cell-free dna so very expensive but very very accurate Mm -hmm. um because that's that's just what we do you know it's extremely important to us to identify early on and and prevent those quote-unquote preventable deaths wow so now Hunter 7 is research, education, and immediate needs. Correct. Okay. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot it of work. Is. That's a lot. That's <laughs> a lot. And when, when did you start officially as Hunter 7? So the official documentation for the nonprofit was December 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, as, as mentioned, we were very uh, new and I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was one of the, yeah, no idea what I'm doing. Um, and then COVID hit. And so when COVID hit, our team literally, like I spent 60 hours in the ER working. So like 2000 and 2020 was like a, like a, a, a fake year. It didn't really you know, we were so slammed with patient cases in the ER um, mm-hmm. and, and that. So everything was put on hold for a little while, but we got back to it, you know. So, so. all of this is in addition to working full-time as a nurse in the hospital? Yeah. Yeah. And then I went for my uh, master's degree right after I graduated. So I was in school um, part-time, working full-time and doing this um, whenever I had spare time. Wow, you are just on fire. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I have, well, I have a great, I have a great team. My the team that that I work with, they are incredible, incredible yeah, that makes, people. So that makes all the difference. Truly, it does. It so, does. so Chelsea, in the beginning of the interview, we talked about burn pit exposure, and we're really seeing this all over the news right now with John Stewart standing out as a big advocate on the issue. Can you tell us your thoughts on burn pits? And did you see burn pits while you were on active duty? Yeah. So, I mean. Burn pits are everywhere. I mean, they're stateside, they're overseas. But what's, I think what's the thing that's really misleading is that you see these pictures on Google and on the news of these massive football-sized burn pits. That's not the real, that's not a real situation. 
um, that's a situation. That's not common. It, it's really not. And so, you know, when you see these horrific videos like that, you're like, oh, you know, people assume that that's the most deadly, dangerous thing you're facing at war. And the people that assume that aren't actually even veterans. So, you know, a lot of the exposures, you know, in terms of burn pits are, you know, a lot of uh, small burn barrels, you know, like um, I know Kyle was telling me when he would fix a vehicle uh, that needed to be repaired in the shop, he would take the uh, the tracker batteries, the, the 5510 batteries and throw them in a, a burning barrel and they'd explode and it was cool colors and oh my you know, goodness <laughs> yeah <laughs> no. i mean we're we're a very veterans are are active active duty we, we can be immature we like to have fun because you know <laughs> that's just how we are and so i actually remember one time i was <laughs> i i uh we were doing a demolition this is stateside too we were doing a demolition and meanwhile i had zero experience in explosives zero experience i barely passed chemistry so for me they said to me chelsea you're the smartest one out here and i looked around and i was like well you're not lying (laughs) but which is is also saying a lot so i i I looked at, they're like, you're the smartest one out here you're gonna come over here and you're gonna help us out and i was like okay you know i do what I'm, i'm told so we spend all morning with the air force uh, filling up bags of jet fuel, JP8 jet fuel, two gallon bags, filling up those two gallon bags and placing them inside of cardboard boxes. We did this every 10 feet. So we're at like three football fields long. No, no shit. Three football fields long. It's like five hours in. And they said to me, you're going to start lining this with debt cord. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. So, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm sitting there and I'm lining it with deck cord and I'm placing C4 sticks on every three. And so, uh, you know, and, and I think this is the coolest thing since sliced bread. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, how many people can say they did this? So we have this massive contraption of just explosives and box cardboard boxes filled with bags, filled with JPA jet fuel. And I'm like, this is going to be gnarly. I hope somebody gets this on video. So... I thought they were going to be like, all right, Chelsea, get out of here. You did the setup, get out of here. So this guy pulls me aside and he says to me, here's a nine volt battery. <laughs> what? And he starts, he starts splicing one end of the wire and then he holds it apart and splices another end. And he's like, I'm going to wrap one end around this nine volt battery. And when this F-18 comes blasting by, I'm going to tap you hard on the shoulder and you're going to touch it with the other one and it's going to blow everything up. And I was like, are you for real? Like, I didn't think, I was like, this is, like, this is not OSHA approved. (laughs) What in the world? So so a two-star general comes over and the command sergeant major comes over and they say to me, you you ready to do this? And I remember the general looking at me and saying, don't fuck this up. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Pressure's on. And so all the army guys are standing around, you know, bullshit and not really paying attention. And so finally they backed up, but you see the air force get in their trucks and drive away. They're, they drive away. And I was like, Oh man, that's never a good sign. <laughs> and so I was standing there and obviously whoever planned this didn't check the wind. I was standing there with one of my teammates, Chris, and I get tapped on the shoulder. I touched the battery. It, it, I've never felt heat like that before in my life it blows about a three football fields wide. I'll send you the video. It's insane. Three football fields wide, this massive, massive flame ball, but there's black smoke everywhere. And so the wind was coming down towards us. Oh, and I no. remember my, 
my boots lit on fire and I was coughing. And I tell people it didn't hurt, but it was the first time I've ever had the oxygen taken from my lungs. It didn't hurt, but it was significant. And I remember it very, very well. Um, And the pictures are even funnier. But after that, I was like, ironically, the Air Force knew to get the hell out of here. And here we are just you know, doing, doing this and wow. you think about it and yeah, I'll just send you the video. It's, it's well, pretty, you'll have um, to send me the video. And, and what was the point of that? <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm trying to visualize was, this. Was like sh- there was a show of force. It was a show of force, you know? So when the jet goes shooting by this big explosion looks cool. And yeah, we spent the entire day just doing cool things like that. I mean, <laughs> that's how say the military is a fun time. It's really fun. So Wow, what a great story. But talk about burn pits. That's quite an exposure (laughs) for you right there. Oh my goodness. Right. So that's that's the thing. And so burn pits, you know, it's such a small cohort that is is exposed in the sense of immediate direct, I'm standing over this burn pit exposure. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people get a secondary exposure, whether it's particulate matter in the air or, you know, um, just stuff like that or on, on their clothes or on the ground, you know. But when you look at the data, a lot of the people that are being diagnosed with cancer and are being, you know, uh, that are, are that pass away from cancer, they aren't the ones hanging out on bases around burn pits. You know, we have a huge influx of special operators. We have a huge influx of EOD operators. Um, actually, we just got an EOD operator and is thir- 38 years old with a uh, uh, stage four glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. Ha- he was attached to special operations. He's not hanging out around burn pits, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, the thing about burn pits is that it by saying burn pits cause cancer in veterans. Somebody like me who spent time with aviation, I'm not going to be concerned about burn pits because I barely spent time around them, you know. Mm-hmm. But we also noted through data acquired by uh, us through the DOD that the Air Force has the highest rates of cancer in post-9-11 veterans. And so you think about it, you're like, the Air Force has the nicest living conditions, right? Right. They deploy the least, (laughs) you know, they don't see actual combat. So why the hell are they so sick? Why are they dying? It's all the pilots. The pilots and the aviation support that are loading these bombs, you know, onto A-10 and, uh, you know, the A-10 Warthog and those bombs are actually made with depleted uranium shells. So, it's the things that you don't think about. And so for me, it's almost, we have to do diligence and, and ethically we have to tell veterans like, Hey, it's not just burn pits. Like if you weren't exposed to burn pits overseas, you're not in the clear. And so by saying it is just burn pits and by focusing solely on burn pits, you, it kind of provides that false sense of, of security. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wasn't around burn pits. So I'm fine. But that's that's not the case at all. Well, and you know? I, I wanted to ask, what are some of the different exposures that you have found in your research and your work with veterans? Yeah, so when we did our study on Iraq, the top reported exposures were, you know, jet fuels, oils, diesels, um, you know, so a lot of fuels. We have a lot of fuelers in aviation that get soaked in this uh, this carcinogenic, you know, substance that fuels our helicopters and it seeps into their skin. Mm. And that right there is a notorious concern for leukemia. But we also have things like unexploded ordnance and shell casings. Um, that an example is our EOD guys, you know, like they're, they're sick. They, they are very, very sick, but why, 
you know, their job is to blow stuff up. You think that they'd be safe when they came home. They're not blowing up bombs anymore. Mm -hmm. But it's those things that they are exposed to while doing their job overseas that really gets to them. So, you know, uh, uh, sulfur mustard gas is another one. We've seen a huge uptick in individuals who deployed to uh, Mosul and to Syria uh, recently in the past, like, five years. Um, You know, uh, V-beds, uh, IEDs, explosions, all those things, you know, not only are you worrying about that initial blast, you know, uh, survival, but you're worried about the secondary um, traumatic brain injury exposures, you know, but think about the tertiary, you know, the tertiary exposure. So when all that stuff is airborne, and particulate matter is, is fluttering through the air, you're breathing that in. And not only are you breathing that in regularly like we're breathing right now but you're in a a hyperactive state you're in a fight or flight state so all your organs are literally shutting so your heart can pump out more more blood and you know fuel that fire and so you're breathing quicker your heart rate's faster and when you that work of breathing increases you're breathing more in you know so your exposure is almost double Mm -hmm. just because of that one incident (laughs) you know and a lot of people don't think of that and and then the sandstorms the sandstorms and the poor air quality you know uh, Afghanistan is notorious. Kabul is one of the most toxic places in the world. Wow. And it's because they, they burn a lot of their own trash. The, the local populace burn a lot of their own trash just to stay warm. And so, you know, not only are you extremely elevated in Kabul, so they're burning, they're burning their own waste to stay warm. It's depleting the ozone. They've done it for, for decades. So it's depleting the ozone. You're more likely to get skin cancer because you're elevated in that operational environment but you're also likely to suffer from poor air quality index. So the exposures are, are unbelievable, you know? Wow. You had mentioned to me that a military medal tells an individual's personal story of exposure. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, so I had a, a guy reach out, and uh, actually his friend reached out for him, and they said that, he was recently diagnosed with um, a form of lymphoma and uh, thyroid cancer. And he was my age, you know, he was 32, otherwise healthy, special operations, you know, a, a high speed guy. And so I said to him, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think about it. And I was like, I don't know what would do this. You know, I don't know how you'd get this. So I said to him, send me, send me over some stuff from your career so I can go through it and get an idea of what you did and, and how you could have been affected. You know, this guy had deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Africa. Oh my goodness. And so all over the place, <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. And so I'm looking at, he had a, a few bronze stars and a few achievement medals. And so I'm looking at one of the Navy uh, uh, commendation medals, and it said he had his team had resulted in the direct killing or the direct um, neutralization of 389 just dashish fighters, and the seizure of over 55 square kilometers of heavily fortified enemy terrain, and that the dashish uh, forces launched over 40 rockets, 16 with chemical agents, into the city of Taza. And so, literally, it says in his commendation that he was exposed to to sulfur mustard gas mm. during an attack that he was in charge of. And it's like that right there is your is your nexus. That's what caused your cancer. You know, your thyroid cancer for sure. And I mean, the form of lymphoma he had was um, mucosal associated. Um, 
I forget the T-cell lymphoma or something of that nature. It's malt lymphoma. But it was directly related to uh, H. pylori bacteria that is common and, you know, it's really relevant overseas. It's from, you know, um, unsanitary conditions. And it's actually pretty common in in post-9-11 veterans. But it causes cancer if it goes untreated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we had this guy's situation figured out within a week, you know. Um, And he's doing a lot better, too. He's actually doing a lot better. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so the little clues like that are just so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The EOD career field has its own unique exposure to risk. Obviously includes blast exposures, which you've talked about. Um, Can you tell the techs and their family members that may be listening about some things that they might need to pay attention to or keep an eye out for? Yeah, so, you know, you think about EOD and, and a lot of the stuff you touch. You know, I know a lot of guys wear gloves, but a lot of them, majority of them don't because mm-hmm. you work better without them and I get it right but you got to think about the things that you're touching right so I see a lot of uh, weird skin issues like you know like either skin peeling or skin hardening or just ulcer ulcerations on skin uh, of a lot of EOD guys because of the things they touch mm-hmm. and so it's always like always always mindful keep track of what you've been exposed to or what you assume you've been exposed to but also keep track of your symptoms. So for me, I can't remember what I did yesterday, right? And that's a big concern for a lot of us, not just because of our stress load, but because of our history of, of you know, mild TBIs, concussions, and EOD is definitely not a, um, you know, they're not, ex- they're exposed to, to plenty of blast waves. So keeping track of your symptoms, you know, like if, if like, and I'll, and I'll speak personally on this because, you know, I try to lead by example. I had a um, severe headache and it got worse and it got worse and more consistent and more frequent. And it was only on one side of my head and it was behind my eye and it blurred my vision, blacked out my vision. And I pushed it off for a while until it became unsustainable. And so I went to the VA and I said to them, Hey, I have these worsening headaches. And that's a big thing, you know, understand your exposures, but also understand your, your body, understand yourself. You know, nobody knows you like you know yourself. Mm -hmm. And so speak up because, you know, just do it, just speak up. (laughs) You know, if something doesn't feel right, act on it. If something doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. So go and talk to your provider. You know, for me, it was, it was literally allergies, but still. (laughs) Thank goodness. But I mean, a lot of other people aren't that fortunate, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the, the individual I was just speaking about with the stage four glioblastoma, you know, you blow stuff up and you got to think about all those tiny particulates that you, that you are breathing in and, and just the places you've gone. And, you know, if your symptoms are there, you know, whether it's headaches, uh, blurred vision, you know, bone pain, you know, your body, you know, your body better than anybody else. Don't blame it on old age. Don't blame it on being a operator, or, you know, get it checked out. Just get it checked out. <laughs> yeah, that is great advice. Um, and so many people are so bad about just, you know, putting it off and putting it off. But you had mm-hmm. said something very profound to me when we spoke earlier um, that really took me back. You said, our mission is to save your life. Can you tell us what you mean by that and about the urgency of your work? Yeah, so I think, you know, maybe maybe we are jaded um, because we see so much death. And, and this is something that it, it keeps me up at night. And considering this is a volunteer job for me, I don't even get paid. It's uh, it's tough. And mm-hmm. so when I say I, when I say that, I mean, I look at the data and, you know, over 7,000 
uh, active duty service members were killed in action during post 9-11, during that 20-year period. And during that same 20-year period, on active duty alone, at least 5,000, assuming it's probably double that, but 5,000 known committed suicide. But when you look at how many have been diagnosed with cancer, it's over a half a million. Over a half a million. This is numbers right from the Department of Defense. Oh my a half a million post-9-11 service members have been diagnosed, diagnosed with cancer. Um, we've had over a quarter of a million. The exact number is 241,402 have died from ill-defined and unknown causes of mortality. It's literally an ICD-10 code, the R99. Mm. We've had over a quarter of a million die for unknown reasons. And so for me, this is heartbreaking. I mean, these guys and gals give so much to come home and to be free of that burden, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then they face a whole other battle. So when the PACT Act uh, controversy, controversy was going on, and John Stewart was yelling at, uh, you know, politicians and yelling at people who opposed his views. And first and foremost, you know, as, as a veteran, don't don't speak on behalf of us in a way like that. You know, mm -hmm. be proactive, not reactive. So it's it's just um, not embarrassing, but it's like, hey, man, have some respect for for what you stand for. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need to yell at people. Use facts. If you use facts and evidence based. Nobody's going to question you. No need to yell at anybody, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You get, you get, my grandmother tells me you get farther with uh, sugar than you do vinegar. So, <laughs> you know. Wise woman. But <laughs> yeah, she's, she's a riot, but it's true. And so when he was saying this and he said, and this, and this really, really, really upset me uh, with the PACT Act because when he made it a point to say to certain individuals uh, on the Senate or the, the, I don't even know, I don't follow politics, but mm -hmm. he said, their blood will be on your hands. And I stopped at it. My heart sank because, A, how dare you? How dare you? It, it really offended me because you don't see what it's actually like to, ha to care for these individuals. You don't see the family struggle. You don't actually put hands on that veteran and hold their hand while they die. Mm. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff in my life. I've seen a lot of stuff in trauma hospitals. I've seen things that are unimaginable, but nothing compares to the moral injury and the guilt of watching somebody who's given so much for our country die from cancer, die from a preventable cancer. And so the PACT Act focuses heavily on compensation and pension and benefits and which is great, you know, if, if sure, but it only covers a certain group of people. And what we're seeing is that we don't have enough screening. We don't have enough prevention. We don't have enough early identification. And so to compensate those already diagnosed with cancer is fine. It's not going to save their life. You know, mm. it's, it's not. <laughs> it's right, going to give them money right, right. until they pass away. So for us, we try to identify early on as soon as possible and to, to get that person into treatment as soon as possible if it is a cancer. Because... If you're diagnosed with colon cancer at stage one, stage two, your chance of survival is about 90%. If you're diagnosed at stage four, you have less than 10% chance of survival. And the amount of people I've seen die from colon cancer is beyond me. You know, I, I just, I lost somebody uh, last year from colorectal cancer at 36 years old. He was a, a Green Beret and, and his wife is a very close friend of mine. And, and she said, if they listened, they being the providers, if they listened to him at when he said a year and a half ago, I'm having issues with my, my GI system, I'm having uh, pain with bowel movements, I'm having blood in my stool. 
if they didn't brush him off and said, oh, eat more fiber, oh, it's IBS. If they did one test, one little, you know, uh, uh, test for $15, literally it's cheap. One test could have identified that colorectal cancer and it could have saved his life, but they didn't. They said, it's all in your head. It's eat more fiber, you know, and he died. He died and left behind two children and a wife, you know, 36 years old. And this is the common trend that we're seeing. I just lost somebody last week, last uh, eight days ago at 647 in the morning. Mm. A, a, a guy who deployed to Iraq in 2005, 2006, his name was Nick Van Hoosier. He deployed, came home, and he started having acid reflux. And like many veterans, you know, he started having acid reflux and they said, oh, here, here's, here's a uh, medication. Here's a, a Prilosec. Take it for the rest of your life, pretty much, right? Right. Nobody, nobody ever asked, what's the root cause of this acid reflux? They said, oh, you know, uh, don't drink alcohol, don't eat spicy food. And so this kid assumed that it was just randomized acid reflux for about 10 years. And he actually ended up throwing up blood, a, a huge amount of blood with chunks in it, tissue, and he went to the, the hospital and they said, oh man, you got gastric cancer. You have stage four gastric cancer, literally. And he died last week. Oh. He died last week. God bless and him. And the, the cause, the cause of that was H. pylori, an H. pylori bacterial infection. Mm -hmm. If we would have treated that, and all it takes is a, a, a two-week cycle of antibiotics, if we would have tested for that and treated for that, he'd still be alive right now. So, I mean, the thing with John Stewart and the burn pits you can speak from up there on the hill, but when you're actually in the trenches and on the ground and, and you're seeing these patients and seeing and hearing their stories, it is one of the most devastating things. And, and so when I tell people I'm not here for fame, I'm not here for fortune, I'm not here to go on Fox News or meet Jon Stewart, I, I could give a shit. Mm -hmm. I'm here to do the best I can to save lives because we've lost way too many already. We've lost way too many from 19 years old to 20 years old and, and uh, you know, incredible humans. You know, Ron Shewer, Medal of Honor recipient, lung cancer. We've lost incredible humans and, and it's not fair to them. And so that's the basis of what we do is the research, the evidence-based research, the education of the healthcare providers, the education of the service members, and then supporting where the needs need to be met. Um, but when that VA doctor said to me, just because you're out of uniform does not mean you're done serving, I took it very personally. And, and he's right. This is the best way I can continue service is to do my best to save these lives. Yes, yes, yes. Well, this is all very eye-opening, and it might even seem scary to some who may have been deployed and maybe never realized their exposure before. Can you give our mm -hmm. listeners the good news and maybe some very simple tips to minimizing their exposure to certain risks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, understanding your exposures is critical. You know, keeping a journal, writing everything down. Um, you know, the good news is if even there's a concern in your mind, if even you said, oh, maybe I have acid reflux, maybe I have H. pylori, mm -hmm. reach out to us. I will get you tested personally. I will write the order myself and I will get you tested personally. Wow. Um, yeah. That's we, awesome. I, and that's, our team doesn't get paid because we'd rather put the money back towards the community. So, I mean, the funding's there and if it's not there, we'll make funding. We'll make it happen. You know, this is, mm -hmm. this is what we do. This is our brothers and sisters in uniform. So the good news is the resources are there. All you got to do is reach out, reach out. <laughs> so, so if someone's listening who feels like they might want to reach out, um, what's the process? How does that work? 
So if you go to our website and you click, if you go to our website and you click on our programs at the top, uh, you'll see our research, education, immediate needs program. If you click our immediate needs section, it will bring you to a form stack form where you pretty much just put in your request like, hey, you know, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I need, you know, and um, our immediate needs director, Keith Dow, will reach out within 24 to 48 hours because he also works full time and goes to school full time. But we're quick, we're quick with it. And we make sure that you get what you need. Um, and if we can't get it done, we'll, we have partners like the, the, the EOD Warrior Foundation that we can reach out to if you're EOD, you know, we have partners that will help us get it done. So, you know, just reach out, just reach out. That's amazing. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Chelsea. I know you are a mm-hmm. very busy lady, um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we appreciate all you're doing to help our veterans and to save lives. And our thoughts and prayers are with all the doctors, nurses, and the staff at the Hunter 7 Foundation. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very, yeah. very much. So um, as is our tradition uh, here at our Behind the Warrior podcast, we're going to end the interview with a couple of questions about your favorite things. Mm. Okay. <laughs> what is your favorite way to let off steam? Ooh, um, this is going to sound like a, a crazy, I, I'm going to sound crazy when I say this, but <laughs> I like to literally go out in the middle of nowhere on a mountain if I if one's close by. <laughs> the best way to let, I, this, is tr- this is a true story let off some steam. I take, um, I'm big into, you know, I, I'm big into firearms. So I'll take my, uh, my 308 bolt action and I'll lay down and I'll just do some breathing work, you know, and I'll put rounds down range, long range, and just, uh, enjoy the peace. Wow. So I shoot guns. <laughs> I swear to God. I mean, I, I, ammo's expensive, so it's kind of, it's tough, but that's that's the best way to let off steam. That is kind and of it, hard to beat. That is amazing. <laughs> it's hard to beat. And it, and it helps with your breathing, too. It helps with your work of breathing. <laughs> oh, wow. I love so. that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what is your favorite music? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to say it's like a mix of like Alan Jackson country and like you know, uh, Dr. Dre. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A little bit. I, I like, yeah, I like it. It depends on the, the misfits, uh, social distortion, you know, it depends on the mood. If I'm shooting, obviously long range, I'm going to listen to some, uh, relaxing, uh, you know, country music. But if I'm riding a quad around and doing crazy things, I'm going to listen to punk rock. So it depends, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> mood based. <laughs> got it, got it. Um, what's your favorite food? Oh, is coffee considered a food? Well, I, I think we can we can <laughs> we can take that as an answer, but I not mean, coffee, um, coffee, but not what was the pumpkin spice? Oh God, yeah, pumpkin spice <laughs> extra, extra, extra extra with the sugar <laughs> melted with the sugar melted too. <laughs> Verbatim, verbatim. It's terrible. It's uh, disgusting. So I was coffee, like, this is all cream. Coffee, <laughs> coffee is, is your fuel. <laughs> I love coffee, but I also love um, Funyuns. They're very good, too. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Wow. Great combo. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and then this is the last one. What What is okay. the favorite car you've ever had? Oh, um, do you have one? My, I do. I, <laughs> my, uh, I have a 1984 Camaro that I love T-tops it's a total uh, shit box 
It needs a lot of work, but it is a classic. It's Fun. a classic American car. Yeah. So what color is the it? American muscle. It's like a sun damaged red. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite color. <laughs> I like the paints chipping. It has Love T tops. It. <laughs> yeah. Z Z twenty eight. It's the old gal. Yeah. It's a nice wow. nice car. Yeah. We bought it as a hobby car, but. That's my favorite. That's my awesome. favorite. I can do burnouts in it with my dog, so it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chelsea, thank you so much. You, you've been such a pleasure to talk to, and, and thank you um, for all your hard work and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for everything you do. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.